Welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And with us, we have a guest, Adam, from Experimental yeah. History. Adam, welcome to the podcast. How do you pronounce your last name? I didn't want to butcher it. Uh, yeah, no, I pronounce it Mastriani, okay. but I am well aware that the three vowels in a row is a real wild card. And if you went back to Italy looking for Mastrianis, everyone would look at you with a puzzled face until they would go, oh, Mastrianis. Somewhere <laughs> along the line, it got Americanized to Mastriani. So that's how I say it. Welcome to the podcast. We are here because we want to talk about your blog post, The Rise and Fall of Peer Review, which I found absolutely fascinating to read. Uh, I have become disenchanted with the scientific process over the past few years. This really helped to explain a lot of why that is. When I found it, I told Stephen, oh my God, we have to do an episode on this. And Stephen was like, well, can you contact the guy and get him on the episode? And here you are. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. No, when in doubt, the worst you get is a no response or a no. So yeah. thanks for the yes. Yeah, of course. Do you want to give us a quick overview of your background in psychology and what got you where you are today? I have a PhD in experimental psychology. I finished that two years ago now. On paper, I am a postdoctoral research scholar at Columbia Business School, and my job is to teach negotiation to MBAs and executive MBAs. In reality, my job is I write this blog called Experimental History, which is a mm -hmm. blog I've said before about science, but a friend of mine was like, you should call it a blog with science, like chili con carne, a blog with science. <laughs> um, I started doing it basically because some of my blogger friends were like, you should start a blog. And I was like, sure, I'll get to it one day. And then they just kept bugging me until... I started doing it and then I fell in love with it. So it has become like the main outlet for the research that I do, for the stuff that I write about science, um, including this piece that brought me here today. Your blog writing style is exceptional. When I was trying <laughs> to pull notes for this episode, I ended up pulling almost everything, <laughs> which is a problem because you don't want to pull the whole post. It was very information dense. It was hard to cut things out because there was nothing superfluous and it was entertaining and well-written. I wanted to keep reading it. I appreciate that. Thank you. For extra context, my other life is I teach and perform improv comedy. So always in the back of my mind is this idea of like, whenever I have a show, it's well, people could be instead of watching me make stuff up on stage, they could be like watching Netflix and eating potato chips. So like, why aren't they doing that instead of this? You should always have an answer to that. And that also influences my writing. Ideally, I don't want to be wasting people's time. And I know that everyone obviously feels that way, maybe some more than others. But that is like the thrum in the back of my head whenever I'm writing. People could do something else. So why should they do this? Well, like, I better get to the point. Yeah, I think having that as an explicit kind of angle on your approach to communicating, it kind of hits the humor point too. What can they get here that they can't get somewhere else? I like the humor. I like the writing style. It's succinct. It's funny. But like you said, it's... it's uh, from all the things I've heard from people who've taken improv comedy and seeing how they relate to the world, I think if school was not completely useless, improv comedy would be one of the required <laughs> things that children learn. It can be really helpful. Like It's unclear to me whether the process of training someone in improv comedy actually makes them funnier in the way that most people think about it. That quality of funniness we think of when it's like, you point to someone and you're like, be funny. Like, I don't know if you get better, like if there's a way of deliberately getting it better at that, but there is a way at getting better at uh, interacting with other people in a way that's generative. Yes, and that, that, I is, think, that is the main thing that people get out of improv comedy is the playful working with other people to build something cool and get the vibes aligned thing going rather than just making jokes. Yeah. A friend of mine who's an improviser put it well once. The thing about a good improviser is that when you shoot them, they die. <laughs> by what she means like if you walk into a room and just like mime shooting someone like with a gun or with an arrow whatever 
they'll, they'll be, uh, 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 they will accept your reality. I mean, this is what yes and means, but a lot of people think of it like have a purely kind of cognitive approach to yes and that it's about following the rules rather than like accepting a reality that someone is creating that doesn't just mm-hmm. happen in words. The other side of this, I've been hanging out with some improvisers in DC now, and it also gets really annoying when that is the primary vibe. Much as Norse mythology has Ragnarok, so too does improv has this thing I call bits bonanza, which is where there are too many bits happening all collapsing on, mm. on top of each other and it kind of becomes a singularity. And I think when this happens, like all improv ceases to exist and like the universe starts over. Oh, but we wow. get close sometimes with a, with a bunch of improvisers that are all like, you got a bit? Well, here's my bit. Oh, I see your bit. It's time for mine. So a whole world too many full cooks. of those people. Yeah, too many cooks, too many bits. Unfortunately, this episode is not about improv, although maybe we should <laughs> have one. So we are going to dive into the rise and fall of peer review. The thing that really caught my attention, the first line I pulled out here, is that for the last 60 years or so, science has been running an experiment on itself. They called it peer review. This kind of was news to me. Peer review is a relatively new thing. What did they do before? It's a hard question to answer because what they did before was a whole bunch of stuff. If you want to go way back to wherever we would say science began, uh, if we have the written word, basically, yes. Okay, so basically people are writing letters to one another. Sometimes that gets codified into there's a society and there's proceedings of the society. Sometimes there's like a journal and sometimes there's an editor. And sometimes the way that things get quote unquote published is you send them to that editor and they go looks good and they send them to other people. Sometimes you don't even do that. Sometimes you publish a monograph or a manuscript. Sometimes you don't even want to publish what you're doing. You want to hide it for years. There's a bunch of different people communicating results in a bunch of different ways. And there wasn't some kind of centralized process for the way that you take your scientific idea and put it out into the world. So the idea that whenever you have something to tell people about the science you've done, you are going to send it to a peer-reviewed journal is only something that's been true from somewhere in the 60s or 70s. I think a useful anecdote that illustrates this is that Einstein only ever had one paper peer-reviewed and He was surprised that it happened and he was upset that it happened because he was like, I didn't tell you that you could send this to someone else before you published it. And he pulled that paper and he published it elsewhere. Um, (laughs) And so that's 115 years ago. But back then, for it to be surprising that someone would review your paper before publishing it, I think says a lot about how publishing used to be. So yes, this is a relatively new system in that it's a generation old, in that it is universal. People have been reviewing each other in various ways for hundreds of years. What's very new about it is the fact that virtually everything in science is now done through the same process. Most of my understanding of like the history of how one communicates science ideas is people just write books or papers or something, and then maybe have a colleague either write a response before it's public, or I'm thinking of like on the origin of species or something. It's Um, kind of funny that Einstein didn't want his stuff peer-reviewed. My read on him is that he was chill, but part of me thinks it's like, what do you mean peer-reviewed? I don't have peers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm missing a lot of the context, I think, for that particular paper, but I think it was an idea that was a little more out there. He ultimately did pull back on it in the published version. It's not the same as the one that got reviewed. So this is also true that people were getting feedback from one another, but the bottleneck for something like the origin of the species getting published wasn't that there is a board of reviewers who said yes. That is the difference. Today, if the reviewers say no, usually you go try to find different reviewers. And if they just keep saying no until the end, you probably publish it in some like predatory journal or something. But the idea that no one is going to hear about this unless three to five anonymous strangers say yes to it, that is what's new. What is it that happened in the after World War II period, uh, you called it? 
That was an era of huge investment in science. So we have tons more researchers. It's really unclear to me from reading some of the history of science on this. It wasn't like there was some kind of centralized movement where there were the peer review absolutists who were like, we all got to do this. It really seems like a bunch of people independently made the same kinds of decisions. Hmm. Maybe there just hasn't been the comprehensive account written about this. Like, why did everybody choose to do this at the same time? There was earlier some idea that this was ported over from peer review of grants, which is much more centralized and was much more ad hoc before World War II and after when we have all these grants going out. Well, we need to make sure that the money is uh, going into the right hands. So we need to make we need to check all these grants before we give them out. I've seen some more recent scholarship saying that, no, actually, these two processes were pretty independent of each other. They happened to evolve at the same time, but it wasn't that we had peer review of grants. And then they're like, well, we should do that for journal articles too. So I wish I had a better answer for what was it that made people do this, but I don't. I only have the knowledge that we were doing a whole hodgepodge of things before and then series of question marks. And after that, we are all doing the same thing. Another anecdote here, Nature, which is now considered one of the most prestigious journals, didn't have universal peer review until 1970 something. And early on in its existence, um, there were cases where the editor was begging people to submit articles to it. So just how far we've come that like any scientist on earth would be thrilled to have a publication in nature. And it used to be that the editor would have been thrilled to have anyone write in. There's a great book on that particular called Making Nature. And Etienne Fortier Dubois, who's a, a blogger I follow, has a very good book review on it that I think got an honorable mention in Scott Alexander's the last round of book reviews. So there's some context there too, if you're interested more in the history of science of it. Excellent. Thank you. You say the <laughs> results are in. What results have come in from this experiment that we've been running for 60 years? Yeah, uh, I think negative. There's a lot to unpack with that. Beginning with thinking about peer review as an intervention is an important way to think about it because scientists, we think of ourselves as people who intervene on others. Whenever we think about the way our science applies to ourselves, we're like, well, not not me, obviously. You know, I come from psychology and all the time people from my field are, you know, intervening in conflict areas, they're intervening in schools. And the way that we evaluate interventions in those areas is we ask, what was the cost of the intervention? What were the results? Are the benefits worth the costs? Whatever we do at the end, we should be really sure we didn't hurt anybody. And we should be pretty sure at least that we benefited people on average, more so than we costed them by whatever it took to fund the intervention. And so if we think about peer review in those terms, it takes a ton of time to review all these papers. So one estimate is that it takes 15,000 person years of collective effort every year. So every year, researchers are collectively spending 15,000 years reviewing papers. That's insane. It's a lot. Well, I mean, it's a lot. How many? That depends on how many researchers there are. If there were a million, that wouldn't be that many. It would still be a high number, but it wouldn't be like that much of all their time. Percentage-wise, I don't know. But those are people who are ostensibly supposed to be doing things like making sure we don't have a climate catastrophe or you know curing cancer or things like that. So whatever amount of time yeah. it is that they're spending, that is supposedly very useful time that we should be pretty sure is spent well. So we know that there's a huge cost. And that's just the cost of the time that it takes people to review the papers. That doesn't include time spent doing things like formatting papers for each individual journal or doing this multiple times when your paper is rejected or doing the things that you figure a reviewer would require from you, but that you wouldn't do otherwise for your paper. And it takes a while for the papers to get through the review system too, you said. Yes. And this varies hugely by field and by journal, but it's not crazy for a paper to come out one or two years after it's originally submitted, at least for some journals in some fields. And certainly if you're doing this 
on like a six-month turnaround, I would say that's pretty good on average. For instance, I had a paper that I submitted last July that is now accepted in principle, but won't come out until probably, I don't know, maybe another month if they demand more things from us. It'll probably be a year by the time that this paper I submitted comes out. Which again, if we believe that we are producing things that are worth reading, then to put a year delay on all of them is also a cost. And it would be and, a cost worth paying if it had like this awesome output, but it apparently exactly. doesn't. And that that's the downside. Exactly. And don't get yes. me wrong, I was just as far as the fifteen thousand years, I was just saying that it might not be that high of a percentage. So it's not like uh, you've got fifteen thousand researchers working their entire year on reviews. But like you said, that's 15,000 years of potential actual progress and work they could be doing. It's mind-bogglingly yeah. high cost. Yeah, And, and we haven't even the, talked about the actual dollar cost, right? Yes. So in the paper, if you value each of those hours at the rate that you would value a postdoc, which is conservative because a lot of the people doing this reviewing are professors who make a lot more than postdocs, but the lower bound estimate for how much that would cost is a billion dollars. I mean, which in the whole world is not a crazy amount, but that is a billion dollars that obviously could have been spent elsewhere. And that's the lower bound. At my institution, the professors make easily three times what I do. So call it somewhere between one and five billion, depending on the ratio of which we have postdocs or professors. However you slice it, this is a lot of resources put into this system, which is all fine. Like it's fine to spend resources on a system if we get good things out of it. The downside here is, it is, I think, at best, not clear if we get good things out of it. No one has really kept track of whether science is better off now that we made this system universal. So this wasn't a very well-run experiment. And so we kind of have to deal with the crappy data that we got out of it. But here's what we can at least tell. We didn't have a sudden scientific revolution around the 1960s and 70s, where all of our indicators of scientific progress suddenly left off the charts. If anything, it's gone in the opposite direction. There's a lot of fretting and hand-wringing about what happened in like 1971 or whatever year it is where all these indicators yeah. start to go down. There was a paper that came out recently looking at the disruptiveness of papers. So basically, if I cite a bunch of papers in mine and then a paper that cites my paper also cites the papers that I cited, suggests that my paper isn't that disruptive. I'm just another link in a chain, which is fine. But we do want some papers where I take in everything that's been done. I do something and then everybody cites me afterward because I collapsed, synthesized all the information, I rendered it obsolete, whatever. That is happening less and less. There's, I think, some provocative work, you know, not comprehensive, but these are all just anecdotes that was published in the Atlantic, I think last year in this article called Science is Getting Less Bang for Its Buck. They have scientists rate Nobel Prize winning discoveries from past decades and just ask, does their quality change over time? And it's not like the later ones are obviously better than the earlier ones. If anything, it goes in the opposite direction. And so with this giant intervention, we would love to have giant benefits. If anything, it goes the opposite direction. For all that we're paying, we should have something much clearer than what we have, which basically the confidence interval, I think, overlaps with zero and could be negative. I've seen a lot of hand-wringing about the stagnation of science and how many more research hours it takes to get any sort of progress in most fields. Do you think some of that might yeah. just be that we've picked some of the low-hanging fruit? Like evolution was a lot easier to figure out than the Higgs boson? I have another article on this idea exactly. I think no. It is hard to know, but I think it would be extremely convenient if this happens to be the time in human history where we've hit this wall in every field simultaneously and where we're not opening up new fields anymore. It's just too suspicious, especially because this is something that people have been saying 
for multiple centuries. So there are quotes from physicists from like the late 1800s going, you know, we kind of all, we got it figured out. Like all that's left <laughs> to do is, you know, estimate the constants to an additional decimal point. And so this just kind of is the way that it feels to be a person at sort of any time, because it always seems like all the stuff you already know is easy. All the stuff you don't know is difficult because you don't know it. And so it always feels like we're at this unique point in history where it's an inflection between the easier stuff and the harder stuff. It still could be the case. But if you look at all these graphs of you know, declining research productivity in all these different fields, it just seems a little too unlikely that it would happen at the same time everywhere all at once. You mentioned your post. Is that ideas aren't getting harder to find? Uh, yes. I pulled out a note from that one as well at the end, so I'll just jump ahead to this right now. I believe you said that one way professional science prevents revolutions from coming about is by preventing divergent thinkers from entering in the first place. The most fervent careerists will outcompete everybody else, and fervent careerists don't produce revolutionary science, which sounds like, again, a thing that peer review is directly contributing to, rewarding the yeah. careerists and, uh, and stopping the divergent thinkers from doing science. Yeah, and, and there's some evidence for this that grant proposals and papers that are especially novel or risky or inter interdisciplinary tend to get a penalty when they're being reviewed. And when the system is so competitive that one thumbs down from a reviewer on your paper or on your grant application could tank the whole thing, the rational response to that, if you are a person who would like to keep a job, is to not <laughs> allow anyone to give you a thumbs down. And the way to do that is to you know, not give them a reason to. So don't do anything that's going to look too crazy to them. Don't do anything that's not going to make sense to them. Don't do anything that's going to make them feel like they're obsolete, which is a recipe for getting more of what we already have, which in science is not what we want. When you make the point of scarcity at the point of publishing, you really incentivize people to optimize for that. And what is optimized for that is, I'm not going to say like, totally negatively correlated with doing good science, but it is not perfectly correlated and it is not correlated in some important ways. Going back to the, does peer review have benefits or everything that we're pouring into it? One basic question to ask is, does it do the thing that it says it should on the tin, which is catch bad research? And we have some data on this and the answer is like, well, not really. What's our rubric for this? Like what would a good rate be for our reviewers? I just have to guess like whatever you think it would be, it wouldn't be they catch only 25% of major errors in papers. Can you talk uh, about the study where they deliberately added errors to papers? Yes. Yeah. There's a few of these. So this guy, Richard Smith, who used to be the editor-in-chief of the British Medical Journal, would run these variations on this study where they deliberately add errors into a paper and they send it out to their normal BMJ reviewers. The reviews come in and they just count how many of the major errors did they catch. On average, it's around 25%. And when they say major errors, these are things like this thing said it was a randomized controlled trial. But if you read the methods, it says we like randomized people by the day of the week in which they came into the clinic or something like that, which is not randomization. You don't get to think that you are an RCT if you do that. We know that these things tend to be confounded. They ruin your stats. So people should catch that. Like that's a big deal. On that particular one, only half of people do. So this isn't great. And again, you could say, well, you know, 25% in general, 50% on things like that. That is higher than zero. Which like, yeah, of course, we would hope, I think, to get higher than that, especially on the things that are totally disqualifying for the amount of investment that we have. Another way to think about this is like deliberate fraud. Like when people make up data, how often does it get caught at the review stage, which is a, the most reasonable place for it to get caught? It's hard to prove a negative, but I've read a lot and looked a lot and I can't find any account of a fraudster being caught when their paper was reviewed. There are tons of fraudsters who get caught, but the way they generally get caught is after they've published 
many, many papers with made up results. Some of them, you know, dozens, we're talking like 60 or more papers over decades. Wow. It just kind of seems like if the system is working at some point, someone should have noticed something, but, but they don't. And I don't even necessarily blame reviewers for that. Like in order to do that, you have to actually look closely at the data, which we know that they don't. Is there like a record where reviewers catalog their review verdicts on papers? Well, where would we see the list of stuff that was rejected on for whatever cause, whether it was bad science uh, or in one infuriating case, not abbreviating the word year. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you you would find that one of two places, either nowhere or in a different journal that accepted the paper. So in general, this is no longer true of every single journal, but most journals don't publish the reviews. So you just never get to know what actually happened. I mean, you'd really have to care about a paper if you wanted to go this deep on it. But when we have essentially free space on the internet, it makes no sense to me to not do this to show like, okay, here's the paper that came in. Here's what the reviewers said about it. Here's how the authors responded in kind. If we're going to take this system seriously, if we think that this matters, if it makes papers better, why would we destroy all that information rather than capture it? But that is what most journals do. So you don't get to know what the reviewers thought of it or how the paper evolved in response. Just to put my cards on the table, your post completely convinced me of the problem. I agree with what you're saying, but I'm trying to think of like what a skeptic might ask is like, all right, maybe they're catching a ton of errors and you just never hear about it. But then I guess you'd wonder how so many big errors actually make it through the process. One damning case was Andrew Wakefield and the vaccine nonsense. Yeah. So this is from my field. There was a paper published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which after nature and science is considered, you know, very prestigious. It was just a simple intervention where they have people either before they report the information on which they can lie. In this case, the critical study was about people reporting how many miles they drove a rental car. So they either sign their name before they report it or sign their name after. The idea being, if you sign your name before it, you should be more honest because something, something you are remembering you're on the line, something psychological gibberish or whatever. And, you know, this worked. People report that they drove more miles when they have to sign at the top and when they have to sign at the bottom. That was like 10 years ago. Fast forward, some people try to replicate the study, not because they think that it's wrong, but because they intend to build on it. Some of these people include some of the original authors. It doesn't work. They end up publishing the failure to replicate and for the first time posting the original data. So now people can see the, the data for the original study, which they couldn't for you know the 10 years beforehand, which by the way, this is very standard that a journal wouldn't require you to include your data. And some anonymous folks who teamed up with some bloggers at Data Colada, which is like a big replication psychology blog, they look at the data and they realize that like, wait, the they've just copied and pasted this data. They basically like took the data and they're like plus five to all the numbers to make it look like the result <laughs> is, statistic, is significant. You can tell in part because you can do some statistical forensics, but you can also just see that the copied data is in a different font than the other data. Um, Whoa, Jesus. And it's bad. It's so bad. That's mind blowing. I, I assume to practice. So like I got a an undergraduate degree in psychology. So I mean, I have an interest in the field, but I've never, I don't know what it takes to get a paper published or to review one properly. The idea of not including your data, is that just because then reviewers would spend 30,000 years every year reviewing papers and not 15? Because like actually pouring through the data would, is a huge undertaking. Why, why wouldn't that be a requirement? <laughs> So there are sometimes legitimate reasons why you wouldn't want to share the data or, or reasons that at least seem legitimate, whether you mean them or not. In a lot of cases, researchers plan to publish another paper based on something in that data that they didn't include in this one. This can range from nefariously wanting to parcel out the findings from your paper and get many publications to, you know, there's only so much you can fit in a paper and we're going to get to the rest of it later. 
So you don't want to make it public because you're afraid that someone's going to scoop you. That's one reason. Another might be there's something sensitive about the data, but even then there's things you can do to anonymize it or add a little bit of noise. So you can't actually tell who specifically said what, but you can at least see overall that the results do comport with the data. I think a lot of it is people are just afraid. I feel extremely nervous every time I publish something and I put the data online because it could mean that someone can run the code and see that like I messed something up. Those are all reasons why people go, right? No, exactly, exactly. Which is why when I publish stuff on my blog, I feel so much better about this because if someone finds an error, I say thank you. When I publish it in a journal and someone finds an error, I say, oh no, <laughs> my, my status, my precious, precious status, it's, it's draining away, <laughs> which is obviously a perverse incentive. There was an editor of a medical journal, I think, who started asking people who had submitted their papers for review, he would follow up with them and say, hey, you didn't include your data, could you please include your data? And half of them pulled their papers. Which Doesn't that in, in imply his, that half those papers were fraudulent if they wouldn't provide well, the data? Well, I mean, that is his read on it. It implies that the data didn't exist in the first place. I mean, you know, with medical data, it takes a ton of money to get it. And so there could be a thing here where people are going to take all the data that I have paid so much money to get and that is so difficult to get and they're going to publish on it before I can. But even so, and especially for medical stuff, people's lives are on the line here. So the standard should be pretty high. Like we should be able to check your data before we start doing medical procedures differently. But yes, I think it implies that there was something in the data that people didn't want to see, which is maybe that it didn't exist at all. I think it would be a great thing if a lot of people published on data because a lot more people would find more things, right? If you published it, I think, like Adam said, that gives other people the uh, opportunity to like scoop your data and, and use it in their own experiments or something. Yeah, but I think that's a good thing. It is in a in an ideal system, but the way that things currently are, where like status is from publications, it gives the other guys an advantage. I feel like there would be ways of solving this that don't require hiding the data. For instance, if you want to use data that someone else has previously published, they get some attribution for it or something. Uh, I don't know, you get three stickers. (laughs) They're an author on your paper or something. I don't know. I mean, I feel so uninterested in it because this is all just trade in status, which I think is part of the problem that when you incentivize people to acquire status by publishing things, you're not incentivizing them to publish great things. You're incentivizing them to publish things that bring them a lot of status. So you get people who are like, well, someone's going to steal my status, so I got to sit on my data. Did peer review actually earn scientists' trust? (laughs) Some will say that it did, but I think if you look at their behavior, no. A very common way that scientists encounter each other's ideas is we go to conferences and we watch each other give talks. People come to our lab meetings. They give a talk there. You chat to someone about what they're working on. People's reactions to seeing data or to seeing research presented in this way isn't like, well, it'll all be tentative until I see the peer-reviewed version. Like, I won't trust any (laughs) of it until then. It just doesn't happen. I mean, all the time I remember something that I've seen at a conference and I'm like, oh, that's useful to cite or think about or reference here. Can I go find the way to cite it? And like, it's not out yet. And it's just annoying because like, I don't actually think the reviewers were going to find some fatal error. If I really wanted to vet this thing, I was going to have to do it myself. All I want to do is say like, hey, you know, this is maybe relevant to this other thing that's out there that I know exists, but hasn't been published yet. And so when it happens that I can't find that citation, I just don't get to talk about it. Mm. But that doesn't mean that I don't want to. Like I would if I had a way of referencing it. But scientists might tell you like, oh, well, are things peer reviewed? I actually think this matters more for journalists. I've heard from reporters who, when they write a story, will get asked by their editors, this thing that you're referencing hasn't been peer reviewed. Richard Smith, that same person who wrote some of these studies on do reviewers find errors, 
has written about this question that like really what the editor is asking is, is someone accountable for this information? Like is someone willing mm. to vouch for the fact that it's true? And that answer is no, whether or not it's been peer reviewed. So if a paper gets published and then people are like, hey, I think there's fraud in this paper, the journal isn't going to, to step up and say like, no, we believe that we properly vetted it. First thing that they're going to do is call the author's university and go like, hey, do you know if this guy is faking data? It's almost always a man. They're going to go, oh, I guess we have to do an investigation. It's very weird that nobody in the chain is actually accountable for the contents of the paper. No one has anything really on the line. Like even if you publish a fraudulent paper, um, maybe eventually you'll get fired, but it's not like you'll get fined. You won't go to jail, which I don't think that you should, but no one has any kind of anything on the line to actually say, I vouch for this. So if that's what you're looking for, you're going to come up empty. It's weird that the authors themselves aren't accountable, but they've already been published. So that's the real esteem. Yeah, they're uh, sort of accountable reputationally. I mean, if you knew that someone published something fraudulent, maybe you would treat them differently. Although in practice, this also kind of doesn't happen. I mean, the author on that um, signing at the top versus the bottom paper that I mentioned before, long story short, it's pretty clear, I think, to everybody who did it, like which of the authors was responsible for it. And he's faced like no sanctions as far as I know. He's still a famous person. I mean, I imagine interpersonally people would treat him differently, but he can still publish papers. So yeah, it's also not like you, you know, go to science jail uh, or don't get to do this anymore <laughs> afterwards. And again, not that I think you should, should, like I wouldn't even trust those mechanisms, but just to point out that like no one is really all that accountable for the things that they publish. No, but it'd be I'm nice if they believed in a science hell that punished them for fra- you know, making fraudulent <laughs> data. I think you said you felt very accountable for your data when you published it on your own on your blog, because then it was your name on the line. And that made a big difference to you. Yes, totally. In a good way, I felt accountable. Yeah. If someone found an error there, I would feel grateful that they took the time to care about what I was doing and that they ostensibly wanted to help. And it's in part because publishing on a blog is a very low status way to publish. No one's like robbing me of status by showing that something that I did on my blog like isn't accurate, like a little bit, but way less than if I publish in a journal and imply to everyone that like everything in this paper is definitely true. And then someone shows that it's not. And all of a sudden I look like a fraud. I would much rather work in a system where people do the first thing. They find errors because they cared about the work. And I want to correct those errors because I also care about the work. Whereas if someone found something in a paper that I had published, the incentive would be do everything you can to show that they are wrong rather than do everything you can to figure out what the right answer is. As far as peer review and confidence in science, I think that amongst the lay people, I think peer review had, well, has for many and had for me, it was like a badge of extra credibility. I think that was definitely a vibe amongst the public, whether or not that was ever shared in amongst academics. I remember in the uh, atheism wars of the 90s and early aughts, that that was a big thing that we would always rally around is like, is this in a (laughs) peer reviewed study? Uh, Otherwise, it's not real science kind of thing. Oh, yeah, because people could publish, you know, oh, yeah, well, we found this evidence proving the earth is 9000 years old. And we published yeah. it in our journal, which it's actually just a rag that you pay 50 bucks to get a stamp that says it's published in here or something. So then you're like, well, where's the peer review? Yeah, it was a, it seemed like a big deal. It was deal. a major thing. Yeah. I mean, a fascinating thing is that there is a journal of creationism and it is peer reviewed as far as I can tell. Uh, right. <laughs> and so like wherever, wherever you can gather three creationists, you can all review each other's work and say, looks good. The earth is yeah. only 7,000 years old or whatever. Um, they can be quite scholarly in their own little niche. Yes. 
which means that at some point you've either got to do the work yourself or you've got to trust somebody. And I think what people really hope for out of this peer review system is that I can export my homework and my trust onto these experts. I just need to trust the right ones and they're going to tell me what's true and what's not. They're not doing that job in part because that job is so difficult. I think no one could do it. Certainly they can't do it in the environment and the incentives that they have. I think the better way is to realize that you're in a hostile information environment. Anything that you hear is almost certainly tentative, and it takes a long time to become certain about things. And certainty is really expensive. So like, yeah, it's very unlikely that spontaneous generation is correct and that you can turn mud into snails or whatever. That one is in the bank. But like, do masks prevent the spread of COVID-19? Well, like you can have a meta-analysis that says no, and you can have some studies in that meta-analysis that says yes. You can make a different meta-analysis that says yes. If you want to know the truth, it's not just a matter of finding the right person and trusting them to just tell you the correct things. These things are difficult to figure out. And I think that is what people hope for from peer review that they don't get and can't get. The idea of peer review it's right up there with double blind and randomized control trial, you know? It seems like a bedrock of science. It makes me really curious, how did the idea of the heretical idea that, you know, maybe this whole thing's bullshit, was that a sudden light bulb for you or was that kind of just like this gradual process? Part of it was undergoing the process and seeing that the papers that I've published haven't been vetted the way that people might treat them as having been vetted. I know because I and always the closest one to the data on anything I'm a first author on. I know that if there's something wrong with the paper, it's in the data. Like I got a line of code wrong or something. And I've checked that code a thousand times. Often I've showed it to other people and had them run it or whatever. If there's something in there that's going to invalidate everything, it's because like I put a minus sign where there shouldn't be one, or I did some kind of data analysis thing incorrectly. None of the reviewers ever come any close to any of that. And I see the things that they do pay attention to And it's like, well, you don't cite enough of this literature from my field, or I think I don't like how you say this thing. Some of these comments are true and helpful. Some of them I think are wrong and unhelpful. All that's fine. The feedback is good. The part where it happens under a gun, and if you don't do what they say, you don't get any status. I think that part is bad. So it's not even to say that peer review itself is bad. I use peer review as a shorthand for universal pre-publication peer review. I think people looking at uh, each other's work is great. So how did I come to do this? Part of it was seeing behind the curtain and realizing like, oh, there's no one back here. And realizing like, oh, well, everyone thinks there's someone back there. And even most scientists act as if there is, even though we know that there's not. Do you want to get people's blood boiling talking about the one where they insisted that you abbreviate the word years? I mean, that's kind of the whole story, but that, that, oh, good. See, I hear it in your voice too. That's like a belligerent junior high school teacher. Like, are you shitting me? And to be clear, like, it wasn't a reviewer, it was an editor at the journal, which also functions as a reviewer because they look at what the reviewer said and decide whether your paper is published or not. So they're even more important than any individual uh, reviewer. The style of that journal is you always abbreviate the word years to the letter Y. The first sentence of my paper is something like, for many Y, people have done this. And I'm like, I'd like my paper to be readable by humans who maybe haven't seen that word abbreviated before. I had to exchange some angry emails with them. And they they were like, okay, why? Why do you want us to go against our formatting? And I'm like, well, but to make it more readable, like that is the reason. And by the way, I didn't write that sentence. Like I didn't write the word why. I wrote the word years. Like you are acting as if I said something I didn't say, which just makes me personally angry. Right now that that paper that has been a year in the pipeline, the editor doesn't like that we said, uh, you know, we document this phenomenon around the world. 
and instead wants us to say we document this phenomenon. Like you can only say you document this phenomenon in the 59 countries that you have documented it in. Um, <laughs> and this is like in the introduction. And it's like, if this is the attitude that we have towards science, like if what we want it to be is a legal document that like is preventing you from being sued on all sides, that is, is shrinking the attack surface to a single point, we can do that, but it's not costless. This feeds back into the whole process, infects people's minds and ends up making them do the kind of science that also has a tiny attack surface. And I think science should have a giant attack surface in the right spots. Like you should be saying things that are worth disagreeing with. And if you can't do that, then like, uh, what's the point? And that is to our earlier conversation, I think part of why, you know, we aren't flying around on antimatter jetpacks or whatever. <laughs> I'm going to jump to a thing later on in the post, since we are on this topic right now. Uh, you're talking about how terribly boring and legalistic and awful science papers are right now. I also hate reading them, but I really enjoy reading Scott Alexander's blog, for example, because his stuff is yeah. actually fun to read. What did you do and what were the results that you found when you decided to publish something not in a journal? So I was uh, working on this project with my friend Ethan. We were writing up this paper for publication and it just sucked. Like the paper was like, it was boring. <laughs> and there were a bunch of reasons for that. One was, uh, you got to cite a bunch of literature if anyone's going to publish this. But like, I just don't think most of what we're citing is actually critical to what we're saying. It's basically like, hey, here are the other studies that are maybe relevant and maybe written by people who are going to be reviewing our paper. So like, here's your name if you're a reviewer. And a lot of it was just like ass covering or various forms of it. And then some of it was lying or obfuscating. So like we forgot why we ran study eight because we were running a bunch of studies and I don't know, we pre-registered it. So we knew what we did and the analyses that we intended to do, but we forgot the rationale that led us to do the study in the first place. It turns out the results are interesting regardless, but as we were writing the paper, I didn't know how to set up. And now study eight, as we talked about it, Ethan was just like, why don't we just tell the truth? And in fact, like, why don't we just publish it on your blog? Uh, and so we rewrote the paper. It took like a day to write it in normal words and to capture all the things that we thought were important for understanding what we did for a general audience and for like the 0.01% of people who want to know, well, how did we specify that linear mixed effects model? The code is there and the materials are there and the data is there. And we published it on the internet. I wanted there to be like a more permanent PDF version of this. So I uploaded it to a site called SciArchive, which is just a psychology specific version of this more general thing called Archive, which is a place that people now sometimes put their papers or preprints or whatever that just gives you like an internet locator. Ostensibly, this is a more stable website. So I posted it there one night intending to like publish the, it on my blog the next morning. And then I woke up the next morning to realize that there's like a bot that tweets out whenever someone uploads something to SciArchive. This is now dead, by the way, because the Twitter API costs a bunch of money. That is sad. But Anyway, the bot had tweeted it out. People had seen it and started retweeting it. When I woke up in the morning, like 2,000 people had read the paper and a bunch had downloaded it. A bunch of people were talking about it. And so I also published on my blog and I started getting feedback. Like a, a biologist sent me like an annotated PDF version. Here's my review. And like, I would do this differently. We heard from one of the people that we cited, one of the few people that we thought the work was actually relevant to, and was like, here's some additional context on how I came to study that in the first place. And here's where I think your effect might disappear. And it was great. It felt like people actually were interested in this and they wanted to help us make it better, which is what I would like to do in terms of science. The paper that I have accepted right now that's going to come out is going to come out in a very high profile journal. And I know that half of people are going to be like, ooh, it's so high status. Isn't that great? And half of people are going to be like, this is the crap they publish these days. 
And like, I don't actually want my work to be perceived with the baggage of status. I want people to read it for what it is, decide if they're interested. And if they see something that's wrong and they care enough about it to tell me, and that's what happened with that paper. And it was great. Like it really warmed my heart that such a thing is possible. And yeah, that is my plan going forward as to the, the main way that I want to disseminate my work is like that. If no one pays attention, that is also data. But like, oh, this wasn't useful to everybody. Well, move on to the next thing, which by the way, is often data that you don't really get from a journal because you know maybe you find out five years later, no one has cited it, but somebody's got to read it if you send it to a journal, but nobody's got to read it if you put it on the internet. And so if nobody does read it, that tells you something. So th- that's what I did. Well, the initial response to you know, the first one that you published, it seems to suggest that you won't get zero doing this going forward. Though now I have some extra status. So it, it may be <laughs> inevitable that people are like, well, but now you are you know, an F-list internet celebrity. So I hate your paper and here's my takedown. Um, <laughs> which, hey, hey, all haters are fans. <laughs> At least so. they got a take. Yeah, no such thing as bad press. You mentioned the stamp that seems to come with all peer-reviewed stuff, that this has been approved as real science by smart people. You have a reason why you don't like that stamp, and you think that all peer-reviewed journals should come with a different stamp instead. Can you say why you don't like it and what the other stamp should be? Yeah, I think that if you're going to put a stamp on something, it should give people the amount of credulity in that thing proportional to the work that you put into it. Right now, journals don't say uh, when they put their logo at the top of the paper, like, hey, we looked at this really closely and we're pretty sure it's right. But it is everyone's assumption that that is what has happened. So instead, I think it would be perfectly reasonable for a journal when they publish a paper to go like, hey, you know, really what we did with this paper is, you know, the editor kind of liked it at the beginning. And so they're like, ah, well, let's uh, have it. some people review it. Those people, while they were eating lunch at their desk, kind of skimmed it from top to bottom. Two of them really didn't like it, but it turned out that the author was actually friends with the editor. And so the editor was like, okay, well, <laughs> you know, one reviewer really saw promise in it. And I think you could overcome the, the remarks from the other two reviewers. So like, go for it. They sort of did. Anyway, we really haven't looked at any of the data, so we have no idea if this is just outright fraud. But hey, here it is, which is accurate. Like, that's what it is. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. Like, I think the only thing that's wrong is lying about it. Yeah, if that's the system you like, do it. But be honest about what you're doing. What do we do now? (laughs) You say nobody's Um, in charge of our peer review experiment. So what's the next step? I know the next step for me is that I want to do more of this, that I want to explore this way of communicating science, that I want to basically restore some of the diversity that we've lost. I mean, career-wise, this is a very stupid thing to do, but I'm hopeful that if I can pull it off, that I can make it easier for other people to do as well. I don't have a prescription for everybody else. And I know that it reads like I do, like I'm saying that like, well, everybody should put things on the internet like I did. For some people, that makes a lot of sense. I've also heard from a ton of people who are like, I like peer review. It makes my papers better and I don't want to do anything different. And to them, I say, well, then do exactly what you're doing because I have so little interest in controlling other people's behavior. I think it's creepy. All I want people to know is the appropriate level of trust to have in this system. And what they do with that is up to them. That's not the only thing I hope. I hope the other thing is that I show people that it is possible to communicate science in a different way, that it's possible for it to work out. My way is not the only way. I hope that other people think about the ways that they could do that are most appropriate for them. Uh, And I see people doing this. And and I'm kind of optimistic that some of the most exciting stuff in the next decade is going to come from people who are doing things in weird ways. In fact, I think it already is. So what do we do? I have no idea. But uh, I know what I'm going to do. And I hope other people take this and figure out what is best for them to do. I feel like um, the immediate future history will kind of bear out which approaches work best. 
if your goal is to get cited a bunch by other scientists, then yeah, journal. If your goal is to have lots of people read your stuff and think about it, it seems like, at least in the circles I run in, that the way to do that is to publish interesting blog posts. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I read a lot more like Scott Alexander than I do the people that he writes about or the studies that he he summarizes just because I like it being distilled down to layperson speak. There's definitely a difference between like having your peers, your actual academic peers review your work. You know, like I would do if I'm going to write a blog post or something, I would have one of my friends read it first and be like, does this make sense that I screw this up? Like that, that's a peer review. There's still room for people looking, you know, having your, your peers review your work, but that's distinct from the, is journalistic peer review the right shorthand for that? You could think of it as like post-publication peer review. I mean, I hope that that eventually just comes, that peer review becomes shorthand for that. I think it's telling that when we say peer review, what we mean is like people have to sign off on your paper before it's published, which obviously the words themselves just mean people who have expertise in your field, look at what you did and offer comments on it. And that can happen at any time. And that could be linked to whether you get to say those words publicly or not, or it could not be linked to that. There's a whole ecosystem that does exist a little bit now, you know, that people do this on Twitter when uh, a paper comes out, they talk about it. But there could be so much more of that, that people spend time reviewing the things that they think actually warrant their time. A sizable chunk of science is never cited ever again. There's a lot of dispute on how big that chunk is. But there are plenty of studies that, you know, just don't matter. And, And in fact, I think can only speak authoritatively on psychology, but I'm willing to say that the vast majority of studies don't matter. This is a much longer discussion about like, well, what is psychology and what, what are we doing? But making all of the bad studies better does basically nothing. I'd love to live in a world where the studies that don't matter go nowhere and no one pays any attention to them. And the studies that people actually end up using get a lot of scrutiny. And this does happen somewhat de facto over time. You know, we really use a few findings in psychology and those have been replicated a lot. But we spend a lot of time reviewing and trying to replicate things that like, ultimately didn't matter. Sorry, this is a totally separate topic, but uh, one that this got me thinking about. You got a lot of feedback on this post, The Rise and Fall of Peer Review, and you wrote a blog post about that as well, The Dance of the Naked Emperors. I'm actually going to skip most of the things I pulled out of this for time and go right to the end. You got a lot of pushback on The Rise and Fall of Peer Review. Why the pushback? What is your idea for why people were upset by it? The cynical take is academics, although claiming to be egalitarian, are extremely hierarchical, and they don't like people questioning the thing that props up the hierarchy. And I do think that that's part of it, that when you are inside a hierarchy that you think is actually good, it doesn't seem to you like a hierarchy. It actually just seems like the natural order of things. And so when someone says that that order isn't good, it really it seems like they're going against the natural order of things. So I think that is a big reason. Another is there are people for whom this system works and they thought that I was saying we should get rid of it, which is kind of like saying we should get rid of traffic. It's like it's not up to anybody. This is the result of a bunch of people making individual decisions. So I think those are two big reasons why people were mad. (laughs) A tenured professor was like, Adam, I'm worried about your ability to mentor undergraduates. Do you still have this job at, at Harvard? Like, I'm a Harvard alum. This is very serious. And I was like, geez. Yeah, people got really mad. He's like implicitly uh, coming after it, your job. Yes, exactly. Yes. Fortunately, I, by then I had moved on. But people also, there's this, this effect called the, the third person effect that people um, think that persuasive messages affect others more than themselves. And so I think if you disagree with something, and I think this explains a lot of the internet, if you disagree with something, you're like, oh no, this thing I hate, everyone's going to read it and believe it. 
I, of course, will <laughs> not because I have a functioning brain. And so if you didn't like what I wrote, that I think people would be like, uh, oh, no, everyone's going to be convinced by this. I will say that the first wave of attention that I got on this blog post, which, by the way, I didn't think many people would read it all. I thought this was all too inside baseball for people to care about. And when I published it, I was like, ah, this is probably you know not going to be one of the ones that pops off and then did. The first wave of attention was pretty uniformly positive. And then, and this happens every time something gets big on the internet, it hits a certain status level where people start to dislike it in part because it is acquired status. Mm. You see people get mad about this. Like, I see this article everywhere, like it's so dumb and bad. And then they show up in my comments. In a big enough world, everybody has every possible opinion. So it is also trivial that uh, some people don't like what you do. And it's trivial that they like what you do. And that is what I try to remind myself as people yell at me on the internet. Interesting. The fact that that guy was like, you still teach here? I might have words with the people who currently work at Harvard. That defends my use of the word heresy earlier. I mean, th this guy took that <laughs> personally. Uh, how yeah. dare you question the tenant of our process? And especially to go for a, a power move like that, that like, I will not defeat you in the marketplace of ideas. I will defeat you in the arena of raw power. Uh, yeah, that, that doesn't sound very uh, like, scientific to me. What he should have done, if he, if he was ready to put his academic clout where his mouth is, he could say, you know what? Here's this giant study that I found or, or conducted that explains how valuable peer review was. Not, I'm going to get you fired for saying this. Yes. P push back with data. Um, and I feel a, a little vindicated that like nobody has done that. Like no one has been like, actually, here's this whole treasure trove of data that shows the opposite. At best, people are like, well, you know, actually finding 25% of errors is good. Like, I think that's worth it. That just comes down to a difference in preference. It's like how much time you think we should spend to get that much back. <laughs> the other response that some people had is like peer review has some benefits. So there you go. And I'm like, yes, the whole point <laughs> is everything has costs and benefits. The benefits should outweigh the costs. So to say that something has good attributes is a little bit trivial. The question is like, do its good attributes outweigh its bad attributes? Um, and kind of the whole point of the piece is either we don't know, which is a is a loss for peer review because it, the benefits are obvious, or we do kind of know and uh, they're bad. Personally, you have won me over, not just because I, I think the institutions are terrible as they are, but also because the science I actually enjoy and read a lot more of are the things like I, I also read your PDF that you uploaded. It was entertaining and thought provoking. And I realized that most of the science that I read is that way. And it tends to get a lot more attention and review when it is written in an entertaining way and doesn't have to go through the whole stifling process that chokes all the life out of it and ensures that no one's going to read this anyway, because it's so such a slog to get through. I, I think this yeah. would be a huge step up for science if more people could do this. And yeah, it's yeah. going to take it is kind of unfortunate that people who are not good at writing in an entertaining way are going to be slightly discriminated against with this new regime, but I wouldn't call it a regime with this approach, <laughs> but they can still, they can still publish the other way. And honestly, I, I don't think it's that hard to type something up as if you were talking to your friend and excitedly explaining the results that you got last night in the lab. Yeah. Like, uh, I have had other people say this too. Like, well, but you have this advantage that you can write in, in engaging. What, like, what about the people that can't, or what about the topics that can't be talked about this way? In my expertise as a teacher of improv comedy, I'm like, don't try to be funny. Just tell the truth. You will be funny by accident. 
it wasn't like I forgot why we ran study eight because I wanted to make a joke. Like I would have preferred to remember. <laughs> it's funny that mm-hmm. we didn't. And all I had to do was tell the truth. And like, yeah, there's additional jokes in there that I could write because I'm used to being funny. But like, I don't need those in a paper. I really just want people to tell the truth. And I just think there's so much that would be very funny about whatever people are doing if they just told the truth about it. They're like, oh, you know, we ran 400 people. We meant to run 500. But honestly, it was the end of the semester and I was just pretty sad. And so I stopped running people. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, whatever, whatever it is, I just want to know the truth. And it just it's, turns it's, out that the truth is pretty funny. Yeah. And it's more relatable. It's more human. I think also, if you are excited in what you're studying, that will come through if you can just use your natural voice. And that in itself is something that makes me want to read a paper. I like other people being excited about their thing. It infects me too. And if you aren't excited in what you're studying and writing about, then maybe don't study it and write about it. That's a sign that this is a bad thing without much value. And if you can't explain it in a way that you would explain to, you know, a friend who's smart, but but not steeped in exactly what you're doing all the time, then like, maybe you don't understand it. And yeah. I think that some of the people who, who don't like this idea think that like, there are some things that are just too boring, you have to write about them in a boring way. No one's going to like them, but they just have to be studied. And I just don't think that's true. I think there are plenty of things that are boring to most people. But there's all kinds of people out there who are interested in stuff that I find so boring. they're apparently happy to read about it. Like some people listen to baseball on the radio and I would rather die. Um, So like, I don't know, some people like studying rocks and that's fine. Like there's nothing out there that is so, that is like inherently never going to be of any interest to humans and yet is somehow worth scientific study. I just don't believe it. And so I think if you take that and you write about it in the way that made you interested in it, there's going to be other humans out there on earth who are also interested in it. Is it going to be 50,000 people? Maybe not, but it doesn't have to be. Uh, It just has to be the people who are going to use the the information that you have to give them. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. You get published in whatever journal and then you write your blog post for mass consumption. That seems like a perfectly amicable middle of the road. I'm curious. I know that in the fiction world, no one will buy something if it's been published somewhere else first. Can you write up your own results and put them on your blog and still get in a journal? Or will they turn that down because it's been already put out in your blog? It's a little bit of a gray area. Now it is not uncommon to publish a preprint, like basically when you start submitting to places. Some places will ask you to like take that down if it goes under review or if it gets published or something that like the authoritative version should be the one that's published. And so there is plenty of space for people to do both. But I I do think that a major cost of peer review actually happens in people's heads when they are conceiving of their research. And that can't be solved at the end of the pipeline by like writing it in one way for this audience and writing it in a different way for another. I think that solves some of the problems. But if from the beginning, what you're trying to do is to produce a piece of work that can satisfy three anonymous people and get them all to say yes to this. You're going to do something different than if you know that no matter what, I'm going to be able to put this on the internet and I'm going to take whatever criticism I take. People who are like, well, you know, I still need to publish for my job. I think publishing an accessible version is better than nothing, but it isn't as good as doing your research without the fear of someone holding up a gun to you and making you do something at the end. Which also doesn't mean that like, I don't care what other people think. The way I think about it is like, if I gave a talk about this and someone asked me a question at the end, like I don't want to be embarrassed. I do actually want to do good work because I care about this. And so if someone had a critique that I thought was good, I want to answer it. If someone has a critique that I think is bad, I don't care to answer it. But when I publish in journals, I have to do that. And hey, maybe I'm wrong. Like their critique could be good. 
And I'm just happy to suffer the consequences of it. Like, oh, well, people didn't take my study seriously because everybody thought it had this flaw. If I don't agree that it has that flaw, then that just is the way that it is. That's the world that I would like to at least create for myself and for other people who'd like to do it. I, I think like it's that. a better world for science. Yeah, I think you can write with the right kinds of pressures. It's like it's different than the journal won't like it if I do this or whatever. But you might think, oh man, my friend or my previous co-author in another paper, he'll make fun of me if I make this mistake. <laughs> so I better be careful not to. And that's actually a good motivation. Yeah. Like it's somebody whose opinion I actually respect will make fun of this for a legitimate reason. I remember years and years ago, um, Andy Weir, the author of The Martian, was on Neil deGrasse Tyson's podcast. Andy had said, I did like a lot of research specifically with the idea of you ripping this apart in mind uh, because I, d- I, don't want, I don't want to show up on your Twitter feed of like, oh, look, this was an obvious mistake in The Martian. I don't think that's a bad motivation for doing some of his extra homework or something, right? It ensured that the science was as close yeah. to right as it could be. I think that's awesome. Basically, I want people to, to respond to a diversity of incentives. Some work is best done when you are uh, worried about facing down a firing squad at the end. And some work is best done by someone who doesn't care whether they live or die. And I think we need both. Well, Adam, what is the next thing that you are going to be working on and where can people find your stuff? People can find everything that I do at Experimental History, um, which now because of the uh, maybe this will be obsolete by the time this goes out. But right now, Twitter is blocking every link with Substack in it. And so now the URL of my blog is experimental-history.com. It'll all be there. In fact, the piece that's about to come out is an expansion of some of the stuff that I talk about in the peer review piece about how science is a strong link problem and not a weak link problem. Uh, and I've got a bunch of stuff to say on that. Long term, I don't know. I kind of want to figure out if flossing works or not. That might be a while before <laughs> I get there and maybe never. But who knows? Wait, wait, when you write a blog, that, you can do whatever. Is that serious about the flossing? Yeah. It, it turns out this is universal health advice is that you should floss. But if you look at the meta-analysis of the studies that we have, the evidence is really bad. It's just like unclear if it makes any difference. And so like, why are we telling everybody to do something? I mean, this is very similar to peer review. Like we're all like, ah, we need it. But if it's so obvious that it's good, it should be pretty clear when people do it, they have better dental health than when they don't. I haven't looked that much into it. This would be a huge project that I have yet to do. So I'm not promising to do it. It's on a very long list of projects that I want to do, but I certainly am interested in it. If there's any dentists out there who want to collaborate on this, I would be interested in it. But that's the kind of stuff you can do when you write a blog and it doesn't just have to be psychology. This is another reason why I choose this life. That's awesome. So yeah, I, don't, I, look I, out, look I hope that. you find... Oh, I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I was going to say, I hope you find no, that it doesn't do anything because flossing is a chore and I don't want to. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I told this to a dentist what they're like, do your floss. I was like, no. And there's like, there's meta-analytic and I was so ready for them and they were shaken. And then this had never happened to me before, but hours later, like after I left the appointment, I got a call from a different dentist who was like, yeah, um, doctor, like whatever told me about the conversation you had. And he was like, in my clinical opinion, if I had to choose between whether someone brushes or flosses, I would have them floss. I was like, this world is crazy. Dentistry is the Wild West. Nobody knows anything. What are you telling me? Anyway, thanks so much for for having me. It's been really fun talking to you guys. Thank you for your time. It's been wonderful. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, this was great. And have a great evening. You too. Steven, let us continue on this episode, which we just finished recording 10 seconds ago. And not at all a week ago. First things first, we've got to uh, give our shout out to the Guild of the Rose. Absolutely. We partner with them now. We believe in them. They believe in us. This is a thing we do together.
This month, they are running two new classes. The one we're going to talk about in this episode is Prompt Engineering for Image Models. I'm sure everybody here is pretty familiar with the various AI models that can make art for you. I have used them to illustrate some of my short stories. If you guys have used them, they are amazing for doing things if you don't care too terribly much about what you're getting. But if you have some specific vision in mind, boy, it can be kind of hard to bring it into existence. And by kind of, I mean, the pickier you are, the freaking harder it is. Especially if you're not great at prompting it properly. When I got the cover art for my novel done, uh, What Lies Dreaming, I drew something up for an artist. I sent it over for him, like just bad sketches, basically on a napkin. And he gave me some options and we worked together on it. And I was like, no, I would like this here. I would like that here, a little more there. And it was wonderful. It was expensive, but I got exactly what I wanted at the end. And I was so happy with it. Whereas with one of these AI models... From what I've heard, if you're really good at that, you can do it. But when I've been playing with them, I basically had to go, well, I guess that's good enough after a while because I had no freaking clue how to make it do what I wanted. And I just kind of took what it spat out after a lot of frustration. There are actually, in fact, a lot of people who do know how to use things. And the Guild of the Rose has a lot of in-house expertise in using the latest image models like Midjourney and Stable Diffusion. So they're providing a course on how you can make them do whatever you want just as easily as if uh, you were talking to an artist. And if you're like me, who spent 10, 15 minutes Googling around and messing around, especially on OpenAI's Mm -hmm. links and stuff, trying to figure out how to just play with it and couldn't figure out how to do it for free, I bet that's part of the introductory part of this course. Yeah, Uh, there, There are still like betas and ways to do whatever 10 free tries or something right mid-journey gives you 25 okay is dolly 2 open ai's does that belong to open ai i don't know anyway well yes they... if you're looking at the future and want to play around with the tools that'll be i was gonna say pivotal or, or instrumental but really necessary for work going forward you're gonna need to become familiar with how to use these imaging tools and large language models so do check out the guild of the rose they're experts over there yes All right. We have a bit of feedback from the Discord. Wes, on our last episode where we were talking about the cultic milieu and then afterwards the... the LA experiments, I guess, and arguments. Yeah. He said that our talk about those probability experiments at the end was funny because the whole discussion of the cultic milieu reminded him about how people get more rational the higher the stakes are. Then in the discussion of probability, Stephen was basically like, this is so low stakes, so who cares? Which is exactly right. (laughs) Uh, Wes also says, just do the probability experiment, but multiply all the numbers by 100 and people will probably start behaving much more rationally. I concur. I appreciate the backup there, Wes, the vindication. Yeah. I do wonder if there's a citation for uh, people get more rational, the higher the stakes are. (laughs) When we tried to do the particular game that was um, in the less wrong post with each other, on the third try, I was like, all right, so you want to multiply all these by 10? So you're bidding... 50 bucks now instead of five you're like no thanks (laughs) yeah we hedged on that for a minute i don't know if we want to get into the nitty-gritty it's i don't know if it's fun to listen to numbers without being able to see them probably not the short version is is that i you let me talk you into doing a bet structure that didn't work out for you whereas like i was able to trade the value of bet one for like the actual cost of winning bet two and the bet two had 95 percent winning probability and so so Technically, it was still a winning proposition for me overall. The worst case scenario was that I would break even, which is what happened the two times we rolled the dice. And the best case scenario is I would make like 50 cents. So in expectation, I came out ahead anyway. But in actuality, none of us came out ahead. And when we when we thought we talked about raising the stakes to make it more interesting, it was kind of kind of enticing for the possibility of walking away with 180 of your dollars. But, mm-hmm. you know, at that point, yeah, the money became too real. There were actual stakes rather than fake ones. Yeah, for the second roll, I actually had cash, and that made it easier to, to visualize. 
yeah, it turns out that in real life, if you do this with small pennies, like we talked about, or like I speculated during the episode, no one really gives a shit. So yeah, <laughs> it turns out. Yeah. I, so I, I do think that the people are doing that with fake points. Well, that brings us very nicely into the less wrong posts for this week, because the first one is Alay Malays. I liked this. Basically, I pulled up three quotes so I can run through real quick. And, and the long and short of my thoughts on this whole post is that basically, I think this is what I was saying when we first talked about these uh, last episode, but just put in clear Yudkowsky speak. Yeah, it was interesting. It, it was pretty much exactly what we said, where if what you really care about is the outcome, then that 1% is what you should focus on. And uh, if, if what you really care about is money, then the money is what you should focus on. And uh, that's why I don't have too much to say about this. Yeah. It seems like we already came to the same conclusions the previous week by sitting down and actually thinking through things for 10 minutes. Yeah, exactly. That's the the good takeaway. I do like, again, the the classic Yudkowsky language. If satisfying your intuitions is more important to you than money, do whatever the heck you want. Drop to the money <laughs> over Niagara Falls, blow it all on champagne, set your hair on fire, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> if the largest utility you care about is the utility of feeling good about your decision, then any decision that makes you feel good is the right one. Yeah, a genuine Wesleyan statement right there. Right? It's, it's spot on. <laughs> I did enjoy the base blast with Wes. You had said, oh, well, let me explain this to you if you don't have an opinion on it. And he says, whatever it is, I have an opinion on it. That's another classic Wesism. I liked it. <laughs> yep. I, it made me laugh at the gym. So let us move on to Against Discount Rates, which has some new information in it. Yudkowsky doesn't like coupons? No, 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 no. Yudkowsky doesn't like the idea of reducing, basically reducing the utility of any calculation based on how far out into the future it goes. Oh, I know. I, I was just running with like the wrong reading of the headline. I, I was explaining it to people who have not read the post and do not know what we're talking oh, about. Oh, yes. You need, to, you need to read these or at least listen to us talk about them semi-coherently. You know, it's got to be weird for people who just listen to these without having read the posts because we assume people have read them generally, right? I don't know. If people read them, what are we doing? I guess we talk about them to throw our thoughts on them. I mean, if people haven't read them, though, then some of the things we say have got to be kind of confusing, right? I suppose so. I'd be curious to hear from anybody who hasn't read a single post but listens to these episodes. Me too. Let us know. I figure most of those people probably just fast forward past the less wrong posts part. Maybe. Yudkowsky says the idea that it is literally fundamentally 5% more important that a poverty-stricken family have clean water in 2008 than a similar family have clean water in 2009 seems like pure discrimination to me. The only way this makes sense is if he assumes they both get clean water for only like a certain period of time and that that period of time is equal. A family gets clean water in 2008 for one month versus a similar family getting clean water in 2009 for one month. Otherwise, if you're just giving a family access to clean water, then... Having an, uh, an extra year of clean water is obviously much better, in which case you would agree with him, especially given like all the caveats he gives up front that like this is discounting things like uh, monetary inflation, opportunity costs of other investments, probabilistic catastrophes. I guess once you hold everything else equal and the only thing you're changing is like an arbitrary number on the year, then yes, that is literally correct. But it's very hard to do that. Yeah, I, I think this is kind of one of those pure thought experiments where all else being equal, and literally yeah. all else, even if it doesn't make sense, you know, because getting water starting tomorrow for the rest of my life is better than getting water starting in a year for the rest of my life. What, what he's trying to draw here is the idea that there's not a clear, uh, he's not even talking morality necessarily, he's talking probability theory wise, between somebody close to you and somebody far away from you in time. Yeah, that's a point that comes up a lot in moral philosophy of like, why do people far away from you matter less than people near you? And I think he's 100% correct that just having a pure discount rate of any percent is ridiculous. 
but that's at least as far as I always assumed. I didn't think discount rates existed just for the fact of their existence. I thought that it was literally because of things like um, compounding interest rates and probability of disasters and other things that made the uh, discounting rates actually something that we want to have as opposed to pure prejudice based on distance. I think the pure prejudice based on distance is a heavy component in a lot of our behavior as a society. Hmm. Um, it, it's it's not even like the distant future. The idea of what we owe the future comes up. That only becomes a problem when your actions aren't taking into account what you're, what happens down the road. Yeah. He says that if your temporal discounting follows any curve other than the exponential, you'll have time inconsistent goals that force you to wage war against your future selves. <laughs> and I, I, again, I like the language and uh, it sounds like a sci-fi movie. And it might actually be one. I never saw a looper, but I remember the premise. I like the uh, the summary of like drug and alcohol use or like, you know, drinking is borrowing happiness from tomorrow. Right. And it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'll feel even happier tonight because drinking is fun, but I'll feel worse tomorrow. Mm-hmm. That isn't kind of an inconsistent place to be if you scale that up at all, right? Unless you want to just play it very consistently and say, I'm going to en- really enjoy the next 10 years, but I'm going to really hate the next, you know, the 50 after that or something, right? I don't know. I, I think that... I wouldn't want to use the term wage war against your future selves, although I can see it getting to that point if you're going to live long enough. And quite <laughs> honestly, that, that does sound like an awesome premise. But like, for me, this is actually a strong good reason to be pro discount rates, because future me is in fact different from present me and may not value the same things I value. The older I've gotten, the more I've realized this. Things that 20-year-old me would have valued and would have wanted for 40-year-old me, they're not the same. There are some things that I'm like, whoo, boy, am I glad that 20-year-old me does not have infinite power over my life because I very much disagree with some things that 20-year-old me thought. Part of that is because I think 20-year-old me was just simply wrong on a number of factual issues, but other parts of it are things that have just changed in my personal utility function, my desires and preferences. I now expect that things will continue to change for me in the future, which is a reason to not value the future me quite as much. He may be as different for me as, you know, my next door neighbor is for me, Hmm. which is kind of a war against future me, but whatever. I have three thoughts on these. I'll see if I can get them all out in order quickly. Uh, One is that I think it's, it's future you in some cases, but it's also future society and society as a whole might, might share your values, like enjoying clean drinking water, for example. So that, I think that's point one succinctly. Point two is an anecdote, which I can skip. And point three is that there are things that younger you and current you and future you probably unequivocally will agree on. Um, kind of like with the society thing of clean drinking water, but basic health, you know, like yeah. my, this is a good example. And a quick anecdote. My dad is 60, 61. And mm-hmm. uh, he kind of just decided within the last year, he, he almost died from COVID last year. And that was kind of his kickstarter to like, all right, what the hell? How do I start getting healthy? And he's been smoking for 45 years and uh, hasn't had a cigarette in a month. And Damn, uh, congrats to him. I know it's awesome. We were talking about it this weekend and I had said that the best time to do, the, you know, to take charge of your health and start that kind of forward thinking is yesterday. The second best time is today. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the kind of thing where like, if 20 year old you is wondering, man, do I want to sit around, eat this entire bag of Doritos and drink a two liter Mountain Dew and play, you know, World of Warcraft, World of Warcraft all night? Or do mm-hmm. I want to like go for a run first? Yeah. Uh, you know, older you will appreciate having gone for, well, run, whatever, take, take, uh, disregard any wear and tear to your knees or something. Right. But right, right, just, right. just some general exercise. That's something that, that is consistent with future you. And it, it, that's unlikely to change. Yeah. Um, I'm kind of interested in that anecdote. If you can like 
squish it into three minutes or something. Oh, I can squeeze it into uh, one minute. Um, my wife interviewed uh, or like whatever toured the campus of Naropa, this hippie college in uh, outside of Boulder. She was very much of like, you know, kind of like barefoot, basically anarcho-capitalist down at the government kind of person in her late teens, I guess. Oh, cool. Um, well, she went to Naropa and fortunately she was like, oh, you guys don't even have a real library. Like, forget this. I will, I'll go somewhere with like a library. Because um, oh. she, was, she was an IB student and was using uh, CSU's library before that. This place, apparently you went to like CU to go use their library instead because they didn't really have books. And she's like, okay, it turns out I do want an actual education more than I want just the hippie mindset. But if she had been allowed to indulge that or she hadn't had that realization, her life trajectory would have wound up very differently. And she probably would have regretted it. Okay. She's like, man, I wish, I sure wish I had like gone to a real school. So I could get a real job, right? <laughs> Rather than just, you know, write peace studies essays online or something. Mm, yeah. But uh, luckily it shook out that way. But it's the kind of thing where the other example might be like asking an eight-year-old what they want for dinner and it's ice cream, right? Right. And yeah. You need that a sounds, certain level of self-awareness. Right. That sounds great until, you know, two weeks in and they feel like shit all the time. <laughs> it's like, man, kid, it's the ice cream. You got to stop it. If Did only you, you, you were thing? aware of future you. Did you see the thing recently where apparently there is some scientific result that ice cream is pretty healthy for you and no one's able to understand it? So they've just kind of been suppressing it for five years. I don't know if this is real or what or what to make of it even. This is where I need to draw the line with government can, can hide Paxlovid and, and the COVID <laughs> vaccine from us and whatever, but they're going to lie to us about ice cream. It seems so counterintuitive and just on its face, it must be wrong. So they're like, this must be a wrong result. We're not going to publish it. But also... Now I want to know more about this. Why didn't you publish it? If anyone has any, whatever, links or anything about this, I'd be curious. It and, could be that the t- houses that buy ice cream also have other benefits. And, you know, like, again, how do you control for that? Yeah. So it could be one of those, those correlation in, issues. And it ties in with today's episode very well. Yeah, right. God, I forgot because we recorded the uh, the main post like a week ago uh, mm-hmm. or the main, the main section. Yeah, I mean, again, publish everything and let other scientists hash it out. Absolutely. Yeah, I like I like that approach. All right, shall we continue? Yeah, let's go for it. Eliezer says, but a 5% year discount rate compounded exponentially implies that it's worth saving a single person from torture today at the cost of 168 people being tortured a century later. In reality, might that be correct? It's possible that saving that one person from torture today can have enough positive effects by them getting to actually do things with their life without all the trauma and stuff that... uh. It is the equivalent of saving 168 people from being tortured however many centuries from now in expected utility outcomes. But then, again, that brings us back to he gave all those caveats up top along the lines of this doesn't have impacts in the future based on investments, etc., etc. So I, I don't know where to put this. Like, obviously, if you're just comparing one person being tortured versus 168 people being tortured somewhere else, the the one person being tortured is is the preferable outcome. There yeah, we, we don't want to use the word better in the same sentence that used to use the word torture, but yeah, exactly preferable. Yeah, yeah yes. I think you know this is probably just like as as a thought about the this post as a whole. He's pointing out like basic decision theory thinking and, and frameworks, and he, he's trying to use it in the context of like okay, let's let's actually just weigh lives. But mm-hmm. a, as you're as we keep bumping up against, there's not really a clean way to do that. If you're going to like just stick with the pure math, it doesn't seem like you can account for. Well, what happens if I actually do this versus I actually don't for and then see what the outcome is a century down the road or something, right? This kind of comes up with the next thing that I pulled, which was that people who deal in global catastrophic risks sometimes have to wrestle with the discount rate assumed by standard economics. Is a human civilization spreading through the Milky Way 100,000 years hence? The Milky Way about being 100 
a uh, thousand light years across, really to be valued at a discount of 10 to the negative 2,227 relative to our own little planet today. And I, I thought this was fun because, you know, Will McCaskill's book came out 2022 or 2023, uh, What We Owe the Future. 22. 22. That makes sense. It was all last year, wasn't it? But, you know, and I know that, you know, neither Yudkowsky nor McCaskill invented the concept of caring about the future, but <laughs> it's fun to see a reference to this. I can imagine this sentence exactly being in Will McCaskill's book. One of the people Will McCaskill was majorly influenced by was Eliezer Yudkowsky and his sequences. So I know, right? But isn't that fun? Yeah. It's, it's just fun to kind of see because now we're going through these these artifacts of history and it's kind of fun to see the shakeouts that they've had down the road. Yeah, you get to see it at the very beginning. Yeah. It's, it's like you don't get to run just, I guess, like the pure math of it and get an outcome number because, like you said, one decision actually has impacts, right? Yeah. yeah. Whereas... You know, so like in the example of not torturing one person now versus 168 in a century, and it's like, but not torturing the person now actually has effects. Mm-hmm. And, and what's the shake out of that, right? Mm-hmm. But, you know, it, if we zoom out and just like, all right, well, he's just looking at the numbers. And we're, it, the reason he's just looking at the numbers, and again, I can't believe I keep forgetting this, and it hit me smack in the face halfway through this post when he says an AI with a 5% temporal discount rate has a near infinite incentive to expend all available resources on attempting time travel. (laughs) And I was like, oh, right. The reason this discount rate really, really matters for the sequences is because the underlying foundational assumption of the sequences is this is helping to prepare people who are going to be trying to create our AI gods in the near future. And if your god has a 5% temporal discount rate across all of humanity, across all of time, that's a very, very bad thing. You should greatly reconsider what you're doing to your god here. So, yeah, yeah. In the case of making an AI god, I definitely do not want them to have a temporal discount rate anywhere approaching 5%. Maybe no discount rate at all. Uh, I'm not entirely sure, but yes, please do not sacrifice the entire light cone of the future for a few dozen humans in the next few dozen years. <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to spoil the the way we brought this post home, but yeah, I think in general, whenever I'm reading the sequences, you know, unless it's like the quantum mechanics ones, I think was more kind of like just answering a question that he wanted to indulge with. I don't really see how that relates to AI, but if anything else is like what is he talking about? This doesn't seem like it's quite lining up with my intuitions or whatever. Ask yourself the question of like, okay, what's the point of this post if we're looking at it from the lens of, yeah, building a god? Yeah. And it's like, oh, yeah, of course I don't want my god making these sorts of trade-offs, right? Mm-hmm. I, I want mm-hmm. my, I, you know, I, I want the I want the, uh, the all-powerful world-governing machine to care about the future in 101 years, just as much as they care about it in 100 years. Yeah. We can't, we can't put like a hard time horizon on it because I think he even says something like, uh, then it would be perfectly sensible and, and actually I probably borderline required by decision theory to like burn through all of our resources in the next century because at century plus one, it doesn't care. Yeah. He also has this great pithy line, you wouldn't like a temporal discount if the past was still around. Yes, this is very true. <laughs> That's one of the great things about the past. This thing at the end here, I don't know if we even want to talk about it. It is, I'm going to go ahead and say it first, and then you can tell me if it's worth keeping in because it's kind of politics and wokeism related. Sure. Okay. This came home to kind of hit me in the butt or the place you get hit when you have uh, have noticed a thing that you did to yourself that was stupid. I, a petard hoist, if one will. <laughs> he says, discrimination is always seems more justifiable somehow when you're not the person who is discriminated against. But you will be in ominous Yoda tones, I'm assuming. This is literally true in my case, because when I was in my teens, I was 
active in progressive spaces. And I too greatly hated the old white men and said how much they suck and how much they fucked up everything and we got to get rid of them. Obviously, somehow, somewhere, it must have occurred to me that if enough years passed, I will become old and I'm already white and male, so I'm two-thirds of the way there. And yet somehow, it didn't quite strike me at the time that I am literally sowing the seeds for hatred against my demographic group. I'm no longer young, and I'm a white male, and all those I hate old white men, I wish they were all dead because the world would be better off for it, uh, has come around to bite me in the ass. I'm like, hey, wait wait a minute. Actually, we're, we're not so bad. We got some good things. I mean, there, so, uh, there might be a way yeah. to view that consistently if you're thinking, like, the problem is old white men today. Yeah, and so the in the problem, future, when you're an old white man, you won't be the same as the ones today because you will have you, know, you won't have inherited their problems or something, right? Or the, the things that made them problematic. Sure. It's the actual things that are bad that we care about, right? The problem always was racism and sexism and those things. But we didn't say racism and sexism. We said old white men. And uh, somehow, not shockingly, that is the thing that people hate consistently, even uh, when they aren't racist and sexist. So that kind of sucked. Maybe I should have thought about my messaging better. Oh, see, I I see what you're saying. I not being online as much. I I don't. I never really run into that. I I do more of the like this idea is terrible and shouldn't be a thing versus mm-hmm. like this group of people who believes this idea is terrible. Uh, mm-hmm. So luckily, I never ended that that direct problem, but. Uh, you, you know, stayed well away from that petard. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, a bit, but you know, there are things where it's like, um, you know, younger me didn't exercise as much as I wish he did. Oh yeah. yeah. And, uh, this is, this is what I like about the, the idea that, you know, you will be the person you're discriminating against, even if it's like, you know, he's not talking necessarily about the century out, you know, person not being tortured or whatever. Every I, day we make the decision whether or not to discriminate against our future self. And this is this is a joke I make at work all the time. This is a bit of a mess, but I'll fix it later. This is future Stephen pro- future Stephen's problem. Fuck that guy. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> yep. uh, you know, so, sometimes it's it's uh, it's self aware uh, in a way that doesn't have actual bad consequences. Was all that worth it at all? Should I trim it majorly? Should I not even put it in? I think it's maybe fun. if I get one endorsement okay. from somebody whose opinion I respect, and I'm like, let's keep doing it. So, <laughs> all right, well, very well then. <laughs> but you know, trim however you however you think is is best. So I'll keep it in. I might cut it a little bit down, especially that thing that I said about my favorite listener. They're all my favorites. <laughs> best of luck to you. Speaking of our favorite listener, who is our favorite listener this week? Our favorite listener this yeah. week is uh, Gabriel Bodine. Total badass. Gabriel Bodine, thank you for funding this particular avenue of not at all peer-reviewed research, helping get the reviews out to other people so they can peer them. And I think those that, words make sense in that context. I think so, and I, I think that their, right. their decision to uh, do us a great kindness by supporting us financially here is is the kind of thing that is con- is consistent with shit. I'm trying to say is consistent with like the LA paradox and. Uh, yeah. discriminating against the future. Gabriel isn't discriminating against the future by making the right call and uh, helping support this show. So thanks a lot. That's right. Gabriel, you've made the future a better place in addition to making me and Steven happier people. This is one of those so cool things that. That, that the effects are immediate and long lasting. That's right. Yeah. If you aren't investing to the Bayesian conspiracy right now, you might be harming the future of the human race. You might be. <laughs> There's a non-zero <laughs> chance that the world will end. And we, and you we know. could have saved it for just a dollar per episode. <laughs> All right. Well, in that spirit, what are we? What uh, two posts are we covering next week? Next week, we are going to be reading circular altruism and the intuitions in quotes behind utilitarianism in quotes. Ooh, fun times. Flame war. I will see you in two weeks. Thanks a lot. See ya.